he's going to want to come out and just kind of say, listen, we were heading off the brink, economic collapse, you know, we were possibly heading to a recession and I brought us back. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, February 7th. Today, Tara Palmieri joins me to talk about the State of the Union address tonight. Can Joe Biden push back against the narrative that he's not doing enough on the economy and convince Americans that yes, he's actually done some big things? Or will this be like most State of the Union addresses in that we'll forget about all of it tomorrow? And later, Bill Cohan stops by to discuss the small New York firm that just unleashed a massive short seller attack on India's Elon Musk and why nobody has been able to pull off something similar against Elon himself. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of The Powers That Be. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Uh, It is State of the Union Day, which is a huge day in Washington and not really anywhere else. Tara Palmieri joins me today to talk mm-hmm. about it. <laughs> I only say that, Tara, my point of view in this conversation is going to be, this is a big moment for the president. It always is. Somewhere between upper 20s and low 40s, millions of viewers are going to be watching. Um, but it's been my view for a very long time that these things rarely move the needle. The stuff that you end up remembering is like when Joe Wilson yelled, you lie at the president, or if there's some... Joe Kennedy's lip gloss. Yeah, or like uh, <laughs> Samuel Alito in the front row, like shaking his head at the president or what? some just little like bits and bobs that, that have a tendency to go viral. Um, they do not move public opinion in any measurable way, and they have not for a very long time. All that being said, this is Biden's first State of the Union in front of a Republican-controlled majority in the House. How is Biden preparing for this? Like, what do you think he's going to say? How do you think he's going to present himself tonight? I think he's going to want to come out and just kind of say, listen, we were heading off the brink, economic collapse, you know, we were possibly heading to a recession and I brought us back. Um, I'm stable. I'm the person who can run this ship. And also your life is better and will get better because of my policies. That's the goal that he would like everyone to go home with. Okay, a cherry on top is, (laughs) and the Republicans are obstructionists. 
that are going to put our economy into default. And, you know, there's lots more good to come. And by the way, I'm not that old. Um, (laughs) And running for, he won't announce he's running for re-election, but the whole idea is to like present confidence in his leadership and the State of the Union and to, you know, basically make the other guys look like they're getting in the way of prosperity for America. So one big thing in the zeitgeist is, you know, the economy feels bad, even though he's done a lot of actually like positive things. And there are some positive economic indicators related or not to the legislation he's passed or has managed the economy that are helpful for him. And yet the public isn't feeling it. The other thing is, and this is like a focus group kind of conversation. This has happened before when he was vice president, like Biden's old, he's old, people think he's old, he comes off as old. And the White House tries to tamp that down and show vigor. Sunglasses, little dogs. (laughs) I am old enough to remember when my grandma would forward me, this is before social media. I remember like those like chain emails that said like forward, 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 colon, Obama is a Muslim. <laughs> like those kind yeah, of like, yeah. or, like an er version of like digital fake news. Like there was a email going around virally. Like yeah, I think you can look it up on Snopes from like 2008, 2009. And it was like, is Biden missing part of his brain? Like he's always like struggled <laughs> with this like idea that he's not all there. You know, and that was, it used to be because of his gaffes, quote unquote gaffes. Now it's because of his age. Like he is old. And I'm just interested to see, you know, how he handles the spotlight. He's done pretty good in previous State of the Unions. I mean, I guess I'm not super worried about that, but it is something I guess I'm saying people do pay attention to as much as the White House doesn't want to talk about. Oh, yeah. He's going to need to like bring on the gusto and energy because it's an hour speech. Like I would be tired at, you know, I'm not going to say my age. But <laughs> I would be tired at 35 up there for an hour, giving a full-throated impassioned speech, even reading from a teleprompter, getting it all right. Josh Tyrangle, who used to work at Bloomberg and at Vice, had an interesting story in the New York Times. It was like an opinion piece about how they could make the State of the Union more interesting, hmm. uh, more enjoyable, more entertaining. Maybe use some graphics, video. Do a, they, they suggested actually that they follow the lead of the January 6th committee and have some television producers turn it into a television spectacular with lots of different characters playing roles, you know, having the cabinet secretaries being featured, showing, you know, the results of the Inflation Reduction Act, the infrastructure bill, et cetera. I don't think it's such a bad idea because I actually think the State of the Union is pretty boring, frankly. I was actually skeptical when the January 6th committee hired, what's the guy's name? You worked with him at James Goldston. Yeah. yeah. Like they did a really good job making the produced packages within the testimony and hearings look really compelling. And they really, really made a case. That's First of all, that's on the White House and White House Digital Office to sort of figure out how to distribute the narratives they want to across various screens. I think it's hard to change the expectation of the viewer that mm. they're supposed to do this in a different way. I mean, there's also like, there's a house resolution that you have to pass where you formally invite the president to come speak, you know? So like, I don't know how you pull off the stuff Josh was talking about on like the floor of the house, (laughs) I guess. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I just like, again, like we're at the point where people tune into politics around mega moments, Mm. you know, like the Parkland shooting or the Dobbs case, the Dobbs ruling rather, uh, and elections. And like January, the week before the Super Bowl, again, I think like 30 million people watched the last day of the Union address. Pretty good for Joe Biden, Sleepy Joe, that, you know, like he was supposed to be really boring. Like yeah. people did tune in. But I just, 
I just don't think people care that much. The one thing I did say in, in the, the our newsletter was like, now that he can't pass stuff, maybe, maybe, maybe there's one or two things he can pass with the Republican Congress. But like, he's moving into this like executive order phase. And like, I'm curious, like, this is an opportunity to just like throw three or four executive orders out there that are broadly popular, mm-hmm. either with the Democratic base or with America in general. And I'm just sort of curious to see, like, there's always something that's like held back from the embargo. You know, they'll brief yeah. reporters on what's going to come. But there's always one or two things that are like, oh, that's a surprise. Uh, and then it like drives the news. So I'm interested to see if there's anything like that. So on the Republican side, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the new governor of Arkansas, you heard that right, governor of Arkansas, uh, is doing the Republican rebuttal. It's funny, like these things always fall to governors. People hate Washington. People hate Congress. You know, the opposing party always turns to some rising star governor. I think people pay even less attention to this, um, unless it's like a Marco Rubio, like grab the water bottle moment. It's this just all of it. I, I hate to be so negative and I hate to tell people this sucks and none of this matters. This feels like one thing that really doesn't matter that much. Mm. Um, and it sort of evaporates into the ether the next day. You're going to have so many pundit panels today on cable news. You, Tara, will be appearing on several of them. So good luck. And you're just going to have conversations <laughs> like this. Now. What should we expect? <laughs> What's going to happen? How's it going to change the narrative? Can Joe Biden, you know, save... Like, you know, his poll numbers, like, will Republicans work? Like, none of those things are going to be answered tonight. But it does give the president, like, an unfiltered, semi-unfiltered moment to tell the country, hey, most of you think I haven't done anything on infrastructure. I haven't done anything on climate. Haven't done anything on guns. Haven't done anything on economy. Actually, I have. And, like, go through it. (laughs) And maybe we'll see what he says there. Exactly. And I, I thought that recent poll, the Washington Post, ABC News has 62% of respondents saying that they don't think that Biden has done very much. And that's not very good when that's basically... Oh, no, no, but, uh, specifically on roads and bridges. It's like, that's one of the biggest things he's done. Like 62% of people are like, <laughs> Biden hasn't made progress on roads and bridges. Well, yeah, because the bridge in like my neighborhood sucks, but that stuff won't be felt for a few years. But it's like, Biden could be like, no, 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 no. I have done, I've literally done that. There's such a big disconnect between what people think and like what he's done. And it's really mystifying. Totally. And that's why that photo op with Mitch McConnell was really big in Kentucky with that bridge. Mm -hmm. So we shall see. So, you know, one thing we wrote about in our newsletter as well was what the dueling narratives are going to be. How does Biden push back against the Republican narrative? And my take was like, I don't know what the narrative is over there. Is there any appetite in the Republican Congress to do anything? with Senate Democrats or Joe Biden? Or is this just obstruction, hands up, stiff arm Heisman all the way to 2024? I mean, if the Democrats can get it together, they could definitely pass some legislation. They just need to like work with these handful of Republicans that are coming from blue states. But I guess it's hard because you can't really get the bill on the floor, can you, right? without McCarthy support. But I'm sure he's going to need to give these people some wins as well. There's Mm going to need to be some work that's done because they need to have some wins if he's going to keep a majority. Uh, Otherwise, all those guys go away. It'll also be interesting to see, like, before the midterms, Biden went all in on calling Republicans, like, or certain Republicans, at least, ultra MAGA. And, you know, it ran contrary to his whole, like, bipartisan id. You know, he thinks he can negotiate with anyone. He's old school. And it's just, uh, it'll be interesting to see how he balances going after Republicans and attacking them and claiming they're obstructionists versus his instincts, 
which are like, hopefully he doesn't have much of a relationship with McCarthy despite meeting last week. But like in his heart of hearts, I feel like he thinks he can like get on the phone with Kevin McCarthy or get on the phone with somebody and get some deals done. Like that's what he wants and thinks like that's his brand. And I'm just curious how he like walks that line. Yeah, it's good for his brand to show that he's doing something with Kevin McCarthy, but I don't think it's very good for McCarthy's (laughs) brand to show that he's doing anything with Biden. So he's going to need to be careful about that. Yeah. It's a delicate uh, balancing act. But I, I think I, if I was the White House, I would be working all of those Republicans um, from New York right now. And just like, there's four of them. It's all you need. Get them in line. You know, and that's how you get some things done. Yeah. And I don't know how hard they're working them. I haven't really, you know, they got invited to the freshman party, you know, at the White House, which is like a big deal. Yeah. And we'll see. Discharge petition. They'll need them for that too if it ends up the debt ceiling ends up going that way. I would be courting people like that, Nancy Mace, others, Don mm-hmm. Bacon. Yeah, they're from swing districts, yeah. So why not? We'll see if they can get it together. Charleston, where Nancy Mace is from, they love their infrastructure. They love their port. Um so yeah, that's a good that's a good target. Maybe Biden will court them as hard as Kevin McCarthy was courting Kirsten Cinema the other night at dinner in D.C. Did you see those pictures of them having dinner together? Yes, yes, that's crazy. Was there any gossip about that in D.C.? She's definitely playing an interesting game right now. I'm sure she's really annoyed with the Democrats. For feeling- no fucks given on Cinema's part, that's for sure. No fucks. <laughs> all right, I will see you on cable news all day long. Everyone look for Tara. She's got a slate Yay. of cable hits for you junkies out there. Thanks, Tara. Talk soon. Bye. When we come back, Bill Cohan talks to Ben Landy about what's going on with the Elon Musk of India. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right, I found that on Etsy, it's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic, try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am, I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. 
The ChiliPad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life welcome back everybody i'm ben landy talking to the one and only bill cohan happy tuesday bill hey ben always great to be with you bill i wanted to have you on today to talk about one of the biggest financial battles that we've ever seen playing out right now between adani group which is like the third biggest conglomerate in india and the short seller firm Hindenburg Research, which put out this report last month, it's been two years in the making, that essentially accuses the founder, Gautam Atani, of running this stock manipulation and accounting fraud. And they announced that they had shorted the stock. Adani's wealth has dropped like in half over the past few weeks. So I imagine the Hindenburg guys in New York are celebrating. They've just made an ungodly amount of cash. But like, give us a little more context on these guys in particular and also how this sort of short attack actually works. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, you know, a relatively, you know, old playbook, Ben. Usually see it with hedge funds. Usually people like Bill Ackman or Carl Icahn or Dan Loeb. And, you know, the idea is, of course, to spend a lot of time, do a lot of research, publish the research, get a lot of attention, short the stock before you release uh, research, before you get a lot of attention, and hope that it works. So far, obviously, in the Adani Group situation, it's uh, worked beautifully. Mr. Adani's wealth has gone from about $120 billion, $130 billion, making him like the third wealthiest person in the world, to about half that, $60 billion uh, in, you know, in, a, in a week or so, uh, which is astounding and unfortunate for him, you know, almost on par with how quickly Elon Musk's wealth dissolved after he closed on the Twitter deal, although it's definitely back now since Tesla has been myopically uh, increasing in value again. Again, this is an old playbook that Hindenburg Research is uh, adopting and has used before. The only thing, of course, that I would say, you know, everybody's getting all excited. They might be high-fiving over there on, you know, uh, Fifth Avenue, wherever wherever Hindenburg is. Uh, but, you know, in the first week or so or a couple of weeks after, you know, Bill Ackman 10 years ago 
took on the, the short selling of Herbal Life. Within you know a couple of weeks of Bill Ackman laying out his major league research that they you know he'd hired people and they did over a couple of years you know an unbelievable amount of work and very impressive et cetera et cetera et cetera. People made a lot of money following Bill Ackman and then they all lost their shirt because Carl Icahn and Dan Loeb teamed up to do a short squeeze and burned Bill Ackman big time to the tune of about a billion dollars and anyone else who followed along. So these are early days, looking good for Hindenburg at the moment, but uh, these things can turn around. Yeah, this brought to mind Ackman for me too. You know, he put out a statement saying that he found this research to be highly credible. Uh, He basically endorsed the findings. And of course, he has his own long history of playing and losing this short game. But um, Adani released their own 413-page rebuttal to Hindenburg, saying that Hindenburg's attack constituted, quote, calculated securities fraud. And they said it was also a calculated attack on India, which has been sort of interesting to see all these Indian billionaires, and Indian politicians sort of circling the wagons around Adani. But the securities fraud accusation is interesting to me because, you know, when you're a short seller firm and you put out a hit like this, it's not just a financial risk you're taking. I presume there's also a potential legal risk in that, you know, this report you put out has to be in good faith that, you know, to the best of your knowledge, whatever accusations you are levying are true or accurate. You know, when it came to Herbalife, Bill Ackman's accusation against the company was that it was a fraud, a total fraud, should be shut down, was like a Ponzi scheme or a multi-level marketing scheme, uh, and that it was preying on you know, innocent people who did not know better. I mean, and and that it, again, it should be shut down. Well, of course, none of that ever happened. None of that was ever proved. You know, there were some rulings here and there from the Federal Trade Commission, I guess, and others, or that made it seem like Bill was making progress in this accusation. But I don't think he ever, so, I mean, he obviously thought in good faith that uh, this was uh, accurate. He, uh, you know, shorted, put up something near like a billion dollars in capital to do this short by borrowing the stock uh, and then selling it and hoping to buy it back at a lower price, which is what shorting's all about. And, you know, I don't know how much Hindenburg put up here to make this short possible, but, you know, obviously there's a total conflict of interest in the sense that, and then they go, you know, and talking their own book and they get a lot of attention. I mean, this is exactly what Hindenburg is hoping would happen. You know, I just have to say again, it doesn't always work this way. Like when the great Harvey Markopoulos, who uh, of course revealed repeatedly the Madoff fraud, you know, teamed up with a short seller a few years ago and put out a big long report about GE, it didn't work. And uh, Markopoulos's sterling reputation was kind of tarnished because he, you know, forgot to mention really that he, in writing the report that he had teamed up with a short seller and that, the, you know, he was all on the short side. So sometimes these things, Ben, don't work. They're incredibly risky because your losses can be infinite. So again, we'll, you know, we're early innings looking great for Hindenburg now. And of course, Adani has pushed back so far without much success. I have not read his 413-page report. I did listen to his video, four-minute video. Um, I mean, I get, you know, we're just in the early part of this. It seems like it's working. But on the other hand, there's also been 
some pushback because the the bonds traded down, but the credit rating agencies didn't decide they needed to downgrade. And actually some, like I think Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley started writing that the bonds actually looked attractive. So, you know, maybe they were oversold. I don't know. Pushback, early innings. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting when you look at what's worked with Adani and Hindenburg versus, as you said, other short sellers that have tried and failed to take on other companies. I'm thinking about Tesla as a company that has had short sellers aligned against it for years and years and years. People have burned so much money expecting this company to come down. And it and it really never has. I mean, you know, the, the stock has dropped over the last couple months like other, you know, overvalued tech stocks have. It's also since recovered quite a bit. But what do you think explains the difference in what Hindenburg was able to do with Adani versus um, all the short sellers who have been putting out negative information about Tesla for years with, with very little result. The only rational explanation I can make, Ben, is the, the mob, the, the, the fanatics, the Tesla maximalists, the cult of Elon Musk and Tesla. Uh, it, you know, it makes no sense. Uh, it is extremely overvalued. It, you know, it was beginning to it was even overvalued you know at the end of last year after it had fallen and the beginning of this year after it had fallen uh, throughout you know by 40% or whatever it was through 2022 it was still overvalued now it's up 70% in the first month of the year there are just some things that are like this bitcoin seems to be like this there's no reason for bitcoin to be up 40% in the first month of the year. I, I, You know, look, we're hardwired to want to see things we feel passionately about increase in value. Uh, you know, we're so we will do sort of whatever we can to make that happen. And even if it's irrational, uh, we can, you know, we, we, we go for it. And I just put, you know, Tesla and Elon Musk in that category. And um, he's now saying things t- today like, you know, he saved Twitter from going into bankruptcy over the last few months, and now it's turned around and it's going to be great and we're heading towards break even, and he's now the savior of Twitter. Well, I mean, th- this is Orwellian, Ben. He's like the destroyer of Twitter, and now he's trying to say he's the savior of Twitter. I mean, I guess everybody just has become a version of Donald Trump at this point, just saying whatever it is you need to say to, you know, get people to believe whatever it is you want them to believe. Yeah, well, I guess if markets are a confidence game, that that cuts both ways. And if you put out a report telling people Tesla is overvalued 10 or 20x in terms of the the price versus how much money they're actually generating, it doesn't really matter if the mob comes out and says, uh, we don't care. We love the stock anyway. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's what makes markets, uh, you know. Buyers and sellers. For every buyer, there's a seller. For every seller, there's a buyer. So anytime you think you're selling a stock of a company because you think you're right because it's overvalued or the time has come, whatever, it can't go up anymore, obviously there's a buyer on the other side who thinks exactly the opposite. It's so fascinating. Buyers and sellers, this is not investment advice. (laughs) Bill, thanks as always for stopping by. Thank you, Ben. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow.
This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.